The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expanding the Benefits of PARP Inhibitor Therapy to More Patients with Breast Cancer and Earlier Disease Settings. Multidisciplinary perspectives on how to maximize the potential of PARP inhibitors and optimize their use as part of multimodal management of breast cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash VHX860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. So this morning we're going to be talking about the expanding benefits of PARP inhibitor therapy for more patients with breast cancer and earlier uh, disease. We're going to give the multidisciplinary perspective on how to maximize the potential of PARP inhibitors and optimize their use as part of our standard multidisciplinary management of breast cancer. I'm Henry Cura, a surgical oncologist from MD Anderson Cancer Center. We also have Dr. William Gratisher from the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, and Dr. Heather MacArthur is joining us, and we're very grateful for both of them. And she's from the UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. So this morning, we're going to be looking at the evolving role of PARP inhibitors in advanced and early breast cancer. We're going to have a few cases, and we're going to be looking at the new advanced with PARP inhibitors and other novel therapies in early breast cancer for surgeons, oncologists, and the broader multidisciplinary team. We'll have discussion, question and answers, conclusions, and key take-home um, take key take takeaways from the symposium. So we we still have a knowledge gap. There's been significant proportion of patients with early breast cancer who are still at risk of recurrence and poor outcomes. We've got new treatments. A lot has happened over the last few years, and particularly this last year. We have made important progress recently for earlier breast cancer approvals for immunotherapy, the CD4-6 inhibitors, and most recently, adjuvant PARP inhibition with Laparib based on practice-changing results from the Olympia trial, which studied patients with BRCA mutations and high-risk HER2-new-negative disease. Obviously, there's a need for broad discussions of the increasing importance of genetic testing, something that we have been um, promoting, um, offering patients uh, in our clinics from the American Society of Breast Surgeons uh, for the last three or four years. And now this has very significant implications and applicability for systemic options for breast cancer and the multidisciplinary collaboration coordination of care among surgeons, oncologists, and other specialties. So let's think, uh, look at this case and think about how we're going to treat this patient. Uh, this is a 60-year-old woman with no family history who presents with a locally advanced breast cancer. Uh, T2 N2, M0, ERPR positive, HER2 negative, NKI67 of 25%. So as we're going through the, some of the uh, data slides, keep this case in mind. And would you automatically recommend BRCA mutation testing for this patient at diagnosis? No family history. What breast and x-ray surgery would you consider? And what adjuvant therapy would you recommend? Let's take another patient, common patients in our practice, a 46-year-old woman with a known family history of breast and ovarian cancer, known germline BRCA1 mutation. She has a new left, high-grade, 2.6-centimeter, triple-negative breast cancer. She had ultrasound of her lymph node-draining regions, and there was nothing in the axilla or other um, areas. 
Again, keep this case in mind. What should the surgeons know about changes in our recommendations for genetic testing, counseling, et cetera? Would you recommend neoadjuvant chemotherapy or surgery first for this patient? Um, would you discuss breast-conserving therapy in a known BRCA uh, mutation carrier? And what adjuvant therapies are going to be recommended? So with that, we're going to go over the evolving role of PARP inhibitors in advanced and early breast cancer, and we'll start with Dr. Gratisher. Thank you. Well, good morning, all, and thank you for the opportunity. And what I'm going to do is try and lay some foundational concepts regarding PARP inhibitors. And I'm going to focus on metastatic disease, recognizing that the audience doesn't necessarily treat metastatic disease, but the usual evolution of drug development is from the advanced disease setting and then into the adjuvant setting. So we usually see proof of principle or proof of activity in advanced disease. And once that's established, we take drugs into earlier disease settings. And as Henry mentioned at the outset, the number of drugs that have been approved recently, immunotherapy, CD4-6 inhibitors, and now PARP inhibitors as examples, all started in the advanced disease setting, showing activity leading to approval in those settings and then further development have shown their activity and benefit in earlier stages of disease. So with respect to PARP inhibitors, uh, you know, I think what we have to recognize is that DNA is continually under assault, whether it's environmental factors, just a normal day-to-day -day life, or the things that we do to people in the form of radiation or chemotherapy. And a consequence of that can be uh, breaks in DNA, single-strand uh, DNA breaks, double-strand DNA breaks, and what we have are redundant systems of DNA repair. And both PARP and BRCA are involved in those repairs under normal circumstances. And if one of the systems of repair is knocked out, you have a backup system, so to speak, that can repair the DNA. And in the most simplistic way that a basic scientist wouldn't be happy with, as an explanation, if you knock out one, uh, you're probably still not going to be lethal to the cell. But if you knock out both, then you are going to be uh, have a situation where synthetic lethality uh, develops. So if you have a um, BRCA mutation, which is part of the uh, protein uh, uh, unit that helps repair DNA, and then also have a PARP inhibitor on board, you're going to drive the cell towards synthetic lethality. So that, of course, is very simplistic, but that, that of course, is the concept. Now. I can't read this, and I suspect you can't read this, uh, but I'll tell you what it says, or at least the points I am trying to convey by the small font that's on the NCCN guidelines. This is the most recent rendition of recommendations for testing criteria for breast cancer susceptibility genes. And of course, uh, many of these recommendations are developed in order to console both patients and their families based on uh, risk factors that are outlined on the left. But more recently, based on the development of drugs that are useful in patients with an established diagnosis of breast cancer, we know that we have a role for uh, using PARP inhibitors in patients who harbor BRCA mutations 1 and 2 and perhaps other smaller subsets of patients at risk, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes. So there is an indication, as you all know, for using PARP inhibitors in the advanced disease setting. In the past, if we didn't have that option, it may not have been as relevant for a patient with metastatic disease to necessarily know what their BRCA1 or 2 status 
was. But now that we have these drugs available in breast cancer, that's aliparib and teliziparib, knowing that provides yet another option that we can uh, provide to patients if they're positive. And more recently, uh, with the development of drugs in the adjuvant setting, which Heather is going to talk about, we now also need to know that patients do or do not have a BRCA mutation. And she'll talk about the eligibility for the trials that led to the approval of oliparib. But knowing that, again, provides another option for high-risk patients, perhaps above and beyond other therapies that we're going to give the patient. So this would be an added risk reduction strategy for eligible patients. So again, if you look at this at your leisure, you can see there are a lot of criteria, but the two I'm focusing on are really based on allowing us to use therapies now that weren't available, say, five years ago. So we have to know who the patients are. So this is the universe of um, PARP inhibitors that are currently available. Of course, we're talking about breast cancer today, and we're really focusing on oliparib as it applies to the Olympia trial. But there are a variety of other PARP inhibitors that have been approved, and they're used in a number of different disease settings, including ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, pancreatic cancer, and, of course, breast cancer, which we'll focus on today. Uh, the drugs are not all identical. They're not just they have different properties, but the general mechanism of action is similar. Uh, so, again, uh, the, the same drugs aren't available in all disease sites. So there were two drugs in the advanced disease setting that are outlined here. These are the schema on the left for the Olympiad trial, on the right for the Embraca trial, Olympia using Oliparib, Embraca Taliziparib. So again, these are two PARP inhibitors. The design of the trials are not superimposable perfectly, but conceptually they're very much the same. And these are patients who had gotten previous therapy that could have been hormone receptor positive. Uh, they were randomized between the PARP inhibitor, in the case of Olympia, Oliparib, and then the uh, control arm was treatment of physician's choice, which could have been a variety of chemotherapy drugs, which in the absence of a PARP inhibitor would have been standard therapy that we would have used in such patients. And on the right, the same thing. The chemotherapy choices are a little bit uh, different. Uh, they are superimposable to a degree. But again, it was a randomization between the other PARP inhibitor, teliziparib, and then chemotherapy of physician's choice. And again, uh, if you look at the results, this is, again, the same two trials. Uh, the time until the disease progressed was uh, better for those patients receiving the PARP inhibitor. And the difference was roughly about uh, two to three months. Uh, so on the left, those patients who received aliparib, on the right, those who received teliziparib, there was an improvement in PFS with both, a reduction in the odds of progressing by almost 50%. Uh, there was no change in overall survival, but you might view it as time until you had to change therapy again. And the quality of life, not surprisingly, was somewhat better in patients who were receiving PARP inhibitors compared to chemotherapy in both trials. Now, if you scan this slide, the point of it is not so much to repeat again what the efficacy results were, but I draw your attention to about halfway down the slide when you start looking at some of the common side effects that one might expect with these drugs. And in many ways, they're similar, but there is a little bit more in the way of hematologic toxicity with teliziparib than oliparib, uh, more anemia, more neutropenia, 
uh, with atelaziprib, a little bit more thrombocytopenia as well. One of the observations that were made in the ovarian cancer trials was that there was a somewhat uptick in the risk of MDS or leukemia. And it was reassuring to see that in the breast cancer trials, this was not evident. And again, uh, Heather will talk about the uh, adjuvant trials. And again, uh, there is a bit more in the way of alopecia with teleziprib compared to oliprib, and nausea was present in both. So in some cases, you have to do uh, dose reduction. Now, <clears throat> we use these drugs in these trials in patients who had BRCA mutations. I don't want to dwell on this slide or the comments I'll make too much, but there is some evidence that there are other subsets of patients who have um, repair uh, um, genes that are involved in uh, DNA repair other than BRCA1 and 2 that may benefit from receiving a PARP inhibitor. This is data that was published in the JCO by Nadine Tung and her colleagues. There's a similar experience, smaller, that was reported for Dalaziparib. And the basic idea is if you look at patients who had either PALB2 mutations, germline PALB2, which is a smaller slice of the pie, or those patients who had somatic, not germline, but somatic BRCA1 and 2 mutations, there was evidence that the drug Aliprib also worked in these patients. I would uh, again emphasize that there isn't an approval yet for using Aliprib in, that, in this setting, but there is evidence that the drugs do work. And similarly, Talaziparib was also shown to have an effect uh, in this kind of population of patients. This is actually my last slide, and I think the reason I like to put this in as the last one is because if you look at the universe of breast cancer patients out there, we oftentimes think of uh, BRC1 and 2 mutations as being uh, more common in patients with triple negative breast cancer. And although the frequency or fraction of patients with triple negative disease who harbor these mutations is higher, 14% compared to, say, 5% in hormone receptor positive patients. If you think of the total population of patients with ER positive disease, I think everyone recognizes that this is a much larger overall number of patients. And if you look at even with a smaller fraction of such ER positive patients harboring a BRCA mutations, numerically, the number of patients who might be eligible for PARP inhibitors is much greater. 10,000 versus, say, 4,800. So it's important to keep in mind that what we're talking about today doesn't necessarily only apply to triple negative disease, but could very well be something that is added to patients with hormone receptor disease as well. Bill points out this is a real paradigm shift for us in thinking about uh, BRCA testing in our patients with newly diagnosed early stage disease, and I'll show you why in a moment. Um, so I'm going to talk about the translation of PARP inhibitors for early-stage disease. As, as Bill mentioned, whenever we have innovation in the metastatic setting, we typically apply those strategies to the curative-intense setting to see if we can improve cure rates and prevent metastases from occurring. And that's exactly what happened um, with the PARP inhibitors uh, in response to the data from the metastatic setting that, that Bill just presented. So I'm going to focus really exclusively on the Olympia study. Um, this was a study of adjuvant elaborate for patients who had suspected or confirmed germline BRCA mutated associated breast cancer. Um, patients in the study had to have high-risk HER2-negative breast cancer. Again, they had to have a known or suspected germline BRCA mutation. 
They could have received chemotherapy either in the uh, neoadjuvant setting or the adjuvant setting, but it's worth noting that um, everyone who qualified for the study did receive chemotherapy. They had to have good uh, uh, functional status and no organ dysfunction. So there are two groups. So the groups who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy per standard of care and those who received adjuvant chemotherapy in the post-neoadjuvant chemotherapy patients with triple negative breast cancer qualified to participate in the study if they did not achieve a complete response. That's our very high-risk triple negative population. Um, and the hormone receptor positive population um, who participated in this study had to have high-risk disease as defined by a s slightly uh, complicated calculation based on some clinical pathological features. So high-risk hormone receptor positive disease, high-risk triple negative disease, and the same thing in the post-adjuvant chemotherapy setting. Patients with triple negative disease had to have residual disease defined as at least PN1 or PT2, um, sorry, up, those who had upfront surgery and those who had hormone receptor positive disease had to have at least N2 disease at the time of surgery. Then patients were randomized, about 1,500 patients randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive adjuvant elaborib or placebo for one year, and there were various stratification factors, but the primary endpoint was invasive disease-free survival. It's worth focusing on a few of the baseline characteristics for the study population. This is a young population, uh, median age, about 42 to 43 years old, with only 25% of patients in the study being older than 50, which is extremely young, um, just saying. Um, <laughs> most of the patients um, consistent with um, population data had germline BRCA1 mutation, so about 72% um, had BRCA1 mutations, so the minority having BRCA2 mutations. About 80% of patients participating had triple negative breast cancer, um, and uh, none of the patients had hormone, or sorry, HER2 positive disease. That was one of the um, eligibility criteria of the study. So about 20% hormone receptor positive. And again, this is going to speak to the paradigm shift. I think historically we've thought about germline bracket testing for our triple negative population, but 20% of patients here approximately had hormone receptor positive disease. So we need to be thinking about them. And I love that figure that Bill just showed showing how, um, although um, the incidence is higher um, for positivity in triple negative breast cancer, the incidence of hormone receptor positive breast cancer really dominates our, our clinical practice, and we need to be thinking about those patients as well. About three-quarters of patients in the study were treated with uh, mastectomy, and 60% had risk-reducing salpingoferectomy. So here's the original data presentation. You can see here that at three years, there was an 8.8% improvement in invasive disease-free survival. This is really an unprecedented improvement in cure rates for our extremely high-risk population, almost 10% improvement in cure rates um, for this extremely high-risk population. And that's reflected by the distant disease-free survival number, a delta of 7.1% at three years, indicating that we are actually preventing distant metastases from occurring as early as three years for this high-risk population. And when you look at the forest plot and you look at all the subgroup analyses, you can see that the benefit is really consistent across the subgroups, whether they received adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy, whether they were hormone receptor positive or triple negative, and whether they had a BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. There was a question that came in already um, about platinum administration, and you can see here that the benefit 
um, was observed, although there's a wide confidence interval for the prior platinum administration. But um, the um, suggestion here is that there's a consistent benefit regardless of platinum um, administration. So um, should be considered in patients who received platinum or not. At the recent ESMO meeting, we had updated invasive disease-free survival uh, data presented, and you can see a very consistent benefit. Um, those Kaplan-Meier curves don't collapse. They maintain um, benefit over time, so that's reassuring. And that forest plot on the right is very consistent with the original forest plot that I just showed you. So consistent data over time, which is reassuring. And here's the distant disease-free survival. Again, very consistent, maintained benefit over time with a forest plot that's very consistent with the original data analysis. What, what types of invasive disease-free survival events are we pre preventing? So you can see at the top, um, distant recurrences, 9.6% versus 14.9% in favor of the elaborib. And what I thought was interesting is the difference in CNS recurrence rate, which is immediately underneath, 2.6% versus 4.2%. So maybe we're not only preventing distant recurrences from happening, but we're preventing potentially brain metastases from occurring as a first um, event, um, which is obviously an area of unmet need. Um, so very consistent benefits in favor of the elaparib um, when looking at all different types of events that are prevented. And here's the overall survival data. Um, not mature, not statistically significant, but as early as three years, you can see a 3.7% improvement in overall survival. Again, this is unprecedented improvements in outcomes for this extremely high-risk population. So very exciting to see overall survival um, advantage this early on. And with further follow-up as presented at the recent ESMO meeting, you can see that that survival advantage is maintained with further follow-up and that the uh, forest plot shows that the benefit is observed across all the subtypes. So really exciting to have a new agent that um, can confer such um, clinically impactful benefits for our, our extremely high-risk patients. Um, when we look at the all deaths in the ITT population, there was a difference in the number of deaths, 8.1% versus 11.9%, consistent with those survival uh, uh, curves that I just showed you. And when you look at breast cancer recurrence, specifically fewer breast cancer recurrences in the elaborate arm um, and fewer adverse events in that arm as well. And with further follow-up, there has been no change in adverse event over time. Bill mentioned some of the toxicity issues with elaborate administration. Um, there were very similar serious adverse events in the elaborate compared with the placebo arm um, so no um, concerning signal there. Adverse events of special interest were very similar across the arms. There were more grade three or more adverse events, mostly hematologic and GI in the elaborate arm, um, as expected, but no concerning signals leading to, um, to death in either arm. So as a consequence of the um, original elaborate presentation, the original Olympia presentation, um, the ASCO guidelines were updated. So here's the updated recommendation from June of 2021 for patients with early stage HER2 negative high risk breast cancer with a germline BRCA1 or BRCA2 pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant. A year of elaparib should be offered 
upon completion of neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy and local treatment, including radiation, they should not be administered concurrently. And we could talk about that in relation to the cases. But um, on the Olympia study, it was offered after completion of all local therapies, including radiation. For those who have upfront surgery, a year of elaparib should be offered to patients with triple negative disease who have a tumor larger than two centimeters or any nodal involvement. And for patients receiving neoadjuvant chemotherapy, a year of elaparib should be offered for patients with triple negative breast cancer and any residual disease after neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So just a few weeks ago, on March 11th, the FDA approved elaparib for the treatment of patients with deleterious or suspected deleterious germline BRCA mutations who have HER2-negative high-risk early breast cancer who have been treated with neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy. So again, everyone on the Olympia trial received chemotherapy, um, and patients must be selected for therapy based on an FDA-approved companion diagnostic for elaparib. And again, I would underscore the fact that 20% approximately of patients participating in that study had hormone receptor positive disease, um, high-risk disease, and also derived benefit from um, this additional therapy. So <clears throat> let's talk about um, cases and practicals. What are the advances with PARP inhibitors and other novel therapies in earlier stage breast cancer? And how does this, how do we interact around this? Move on to the next slide. Let's go um, back to this case. A six-year-old woman with no family history presents with a locally advanced breast cancer. She's considered locally advanced, although she, she just had a T2 tumor. She had ultrasound demonstrating greater than four abnormal nodes, a biopsy-proven um, axillary lymph node. She happened to have a clip placed in this node. Um, she did go on, undergo syst systemic staging. She did not have metastatic disease. She had ER positive, PR positive, and HER2 negative, and KI67 of 25%. So um, to, we've, we've just, because we've had several questions around, around this, how, how, I will just start with, how would this patient be scheduled at UT Southwestern? You know, um, when would they be interacting? I don't know if you use genetic counseling, I you know, the medical oncologist, how does that work? So typically they would um, be referred to a surgeon first um, with their newly diagnosed breast cancer. And the surgeon would typically refer someone like this with high-risk disease to medical oncology thereafter for consideration of um, neoadjuvant therapy. And potentially this woman would um, benefit from some downstaging and that might um, um, be helpful um, for, you know, mitigating the uh, amount of surgery that's required. This is kind of an interesting case. So um, more nodes involved than would qualify for our expander. So she's not someone that we would typically do oncotype testing on. So she would be considered for upfront chemotherapy. She would be considered for upfront uh, bracket testing based on the data that I just showed you, the Olympia data. So patients, again, so I've just shared that I would consider chemotherapy for her. I would administer it probably in the neoadjuvant setting. And if she um, qualified for the adjuvant elaborate, um um, access, then I would consider that if she had a germline BRCA mutation. So we're doing testing earlier on 
in our ER positive disease. Historically, we've thought about it mostly with triple negative breast cancer, but now with this data that allows us to pivot and improve cure rates and improve overall survival with adjuvant laparib, um, then um, we're, we're typically testing earlier on. Um, it's complicated a little bit by the um, Monarch E data with adjuvant abemocyclib as well. So um, as you're all aware, adjuvant abemocyclib was also recently approved for the treatment of women with uh, node-positive disease with a high KI-67 greater than 20%. So that's also a systemic therapy that I would consider for her. So, so would that be pre-op? That would be, po- that would be post-op. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the Monarch E study, patients could initiate their adjuvant abemocyclib. So that's a CDK4-6 inhibitor that conferred overall survival advantage in the metastatic setting and then improved cure rates, um, or very early cure rates in high-risk node-positive um, disease in the early-stage setting. And patients could initiate their adjuvant abemocyclib on the Monarch E study within 16 months of completing surgery. Um, whereas patients on Olympia had to initiate their laparib um, within one to three months. So I would probably, in a very high-risk person, think about sequencing those two drugs together with hormone therapy. I don't know, Bill, what do you think? Same. Um, you know, the only, you know, of course, we'd probably scan this patient at the outset just to make sure she doesn't have metastatic disease. But I would concur with everything that was said, that we would give this patient preoperative therapy. Uh, she's high enough risk based on her initial characteristics that, you know, the monarchy data would come into play. The uh, Liprib data uh, for a BRCA mutation, if she had it, would be applicable here. What I probably wouldn't do is give them concurrently, meaning a bemocyclib and a PARP inhibitor. As Heather said, I would do it in sequence. And, you know, this is an area where we don't have any data, by the way, in patients where they are both eligible for a PARP inhibitor and uh, data with abemocyclib. We don't have, you know, any efficacy data. So we're sort of data-free zone. So how how would the patient be scheduled? How would, when would they see the medical, surgical? Do you have genetic counseling or... Yes. So this is a patient that would typically, um, not unlike uh, UT Southwestern, probably gain entry via the surgeons. And then somebody would walk down the hall and we'd be seeing them as well. This is a patient who would get pre-op therapy. We would try to get the information uh, about genetic testing quickly. Uh, It could very well, obviously, influence the surgical approach in this patient. So again, I would throw it back to you too. If this patient had a BRCA mutation, how would that influence the surgery that you did after um, pre-op therapy? Yeah, um, def- definitely um, would change change our thinking and and discussions around options for the patient. I see the KI sixty seven is twenty five percent. Is 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 um no neoendocrine on the table for such a patient. She's, you know, very bulky axillary disease. Um, I, I hear you, both of you are saying chemo. Um, and I know there's no role for genetic profiling or, or you, did, you, you would not do it. Um, I, I suppose if I was Nadia Harbeck, uh, one of our German colleagues standing up here, there may be more enthusiasm for doing that. 
I think this patient is still on the younger side. We're not aware of any comorbidities. Uh, she has bulky, high volume disease. I would be more inclined to give chemotherapy. Yeah, again, the ARCSPONDER study enrolled patients who had uh, one to three lymph nodes involved. And if, so if she were a, a patient with T1, or sorry, N1 disease, then I would consider genomic testing there. But she has more advanced disease, and therefore um, there's no data to support genomic testing in this setting. Um, and given the high-risk features, the extensive nodal involvement, the high KI-67, she would be considered for chemotherapy. We could debate what chemotherapy we might give her, but mm. um, she would, I think, uh, across the board, be considered for chemotherapy. Frankly, you know, it's not something I would have been thinking of at the beginning. Um, no family history, you know, ER positive. Um, so genetic testing was ordered. Germline BRCA2 mutation was positive. I can tell you at MD Anderson um, a little bit about how we see patients at, at Texas Medical Center. The, the patient would have already had her pathology from the biopsy, most of it are from outside. Uh, that would have been reviewed. Uh, she would generally have her imaging already performed before um, we saw her. Um, we do a lot of ultrasound of the nodes, and we, we use that in treatment planning. Um, she would be scheduled, if she has invasive breast cancer, kind of in a multi-team manner. She would be scheduled for a medical oncologist, a surgical oncologist, often a radiation oncologist. Sometimes we see them all three together. We also pre-schedule these patients, um, if regardless, for plastic surgeons. So... Um, now the genetic genetic counseling and testing, I'll just say in my in our practice, um, I don't order it. I discuss uh, genetic testing, um, but our 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 team, our genetic counselors, I think at this point we have I think about over twenty five. Uh, believe it or not, um, that that patient, if there was an indication, it sounds like there, there's more and more indications. If one out of twenty ER positive cases you know, are going to be, have this mutation and there might be a high-risk patient who would benefit. So our group, under the direction of Dr. Ambanu Arun, you know, we're going to have to think about that. So what I'm saying is that patient would ha probably have a virtual um, genetic counseling session within that 24-hour when we, we first saw her. So this, this does change, of course, the surgery thinking around that 60-year-old with BRCA2 uh, uh, mutation. But worth noting, Henry, that the BRCA2 mutations are uh, more highly associated with ER-positive disease, whereas the BRCA1 mutations are more associated with triple-negative disease. So um, it's very consistent with um, public data around the BRCA2 mutations being associated with hormone receptor-positive. Would there be any circumstances where, I mean, you may do it at some later date, but knowing that information now regarding the BRCA2 mutation, you wouldn't counsel a contralateral mastectomy? So interestingly enough, I'm finding um, more and more patients, even knowing their risk of contralateral breast cancer, you know, especially the younger patients, um, BRCA1, 40%, um, 20-year, uh, BRCA2, maybe 25% contralateral risk. Uh, and probably, you know, uh, there's a higher risk with multiple first, you know, first degree relatives, and that and 
that often has the patient making decisions, particularly if they have sisters, mothers, or um, who have uh, unfortunately had early breast cancer and died. Um, but our our radiation on oncologists um, are comfortable offering breast conserving therapy, uh, given even the contralateral risk, because the data, you know, depending on if the patient was on endocrine therapy and ophorectomy, the data probably ipsilateral breast tumor recurrences are very similar um, for the initial diagnosis. So um, this patient's a little complicated, you know, because I know she's going to be recommended radiation and how I would um, or how our team would recommend sequencing uh, probably the neoadjuvant chemotherapy um, first, of course, and patient would meet with the plastic surgeons uh, she'd get more information, more counseling around it. And if she was going for a mastectomy because of the advanced disease, we probably, if she wanted a contralateral um, nipple sparing or um, mastectomy with reconstruction, then we probably would do that as a second operation so she can go forward with the radiation and other adjuvant therapies. Um, but it's I'm surprised a lot of... I'm in more and more in my practice. I'm I'm finding particularly the postmenopausal woman would like to go into high risk screening if they didn't know they had a mutation. So we are following you know a pretty large cohort of patients over the last um, five to ten years who really are requesting it, and we're offering it. I would just also mention that the um, again the in the Olympia study, that Olaparib is initiated after completion of all local therapies, so should not be co-administered with radiation. And on that study, about 9 out of 10 women who had hormone receptor positive disease received hormone therapy co-administered with their Olaparib. Um, so mm. waiting until the regional therapy is o over, hormone therapy can be initiated um, earlier on as desired, but the Olaparib really shouldn't be administered until radiation is completed, if indicated. So I, I also mentioned, you were thinking about that we, we do have, it's a clinical trial where actually if we know they're going to get radiation and they want an autologous reconstruction, we are beginning to give a preoperative regimen of, so neoadjuvant chemo, systemic therapy, pre-radiation, because we know they want a mastectomy or need a mastectomy and bringing in a healthy tissue flap um, sparing, of course, the skin and or nipple. And our idea was maybe they could be done, you know, instead of having expanders and all that type of thing. And actually, um, Dr. Um, Singh from MD Anderson is presenting our initial data on those patients at this meeting. And essentially, it, it seems to be a pretty safe approach. Again, we have another trial to a follow-up trial similar to the Prada trial from Europe where they were giving preoperative radiation. Um, it, it really is for a specific patient who wants autologous reconstruction. For this particular patient, um, again, I wouldn't have been thinking genetic testing, so I would hope not to be offering this postmenopausal woman a contralateral prophylactic mastectomy. Um, but of course, the discussion's now, now um, di different. So what other information do we have here? Okay, she receives neoadjuvant chemotherapy preoperatively. Surgery, uh, chose mastectomy with immediate reconstruction. I will say 
Um, there has been a change in, in our practice in, in this case wh- who, where I think it's going to be a high risk of need for an X-ray dissection. So first of all, in our practice, someone with locally bulky X-ray nodal disease, we would not offer targeted dissection. We just don't have the long-term data on it. We usually go for patients with four, uh, maximum four lymph nodes. So we would be, I would already know that I'm going to do an X-ray dissection in this, in this situation. And what's new is besides having our trial for um, ACASOG axillary reverse mapping um, off protocol, this patient, I would offer her um, axillary reverse mapping and lymphovenous bypass. There's more and more data, meta-analyses. We're really showing that it's decreasing uh, the rate and the amount of lymphedema in patients. So that's something that that is new. This is a microvascular surgery. I don't do it. Our plastic surgeons do it. Um, pathology. Wow. Six centimeter tumor, 11 lymph nodes positive. Okay. Referred to radiation oncology for radiotherapy. So, Dr. Uh, MacArthur, I'm, I'm a little confused about, so with the radiation uh, in this patient. Uh, so you you said with uh, regards so, to the systemic therapy, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I mean, this patient obviously has very high risk disease, a, a large tumor, eleven lymph nodes, so more than was anticipated. Would definitely refer to radiation oncology, um, hormone therapy. So she would be treated. Um, presumably, she's postmenopausal. She would be treated with an aromatase inhibitor per standard of care. Um, sometimes I initiate that um, before radiation is initiated. It sort of um, depends on scheduling and planning, um, so, and I haven't had any issues with concurrent administration with radiation. Um, I would definitely consider her for um, adjuvant abemocyclob. She meets criteria on a couple of fronts. She has four or more nodes involved. That was one of the criteria for Monarch E and then a KI-67 greater than or equal to 20%. So that is another, was another criteria. A lot of centers don't actually do KI-67 testing. Um, It's been um, a a problematic um, biomarker in that there has been a a lot of inter-observer um, variability. And so some centers have decided not to uh, pursue KI-67. So just so you're aware, ASCO adopted a more sort of, I think, pragmatic um, approach um, in recommending adjuvant bemocyclob that excludes the KI-67 um, indication that's incorporated in the FDA approval. So it's more um, just based on clinical um, pathologic high-risk features that exclude KI-67. But in this case, it was performed and it was above the 20%. She has nodal involvement. So she would be considered for adjuvant at Bemocyclob. Again, in that study, it could be administered um, or it could be initiated up to 16 months after surgery. So there's a potential window there. If she had a BRCA mutation, she has a BRCA2 mutation, this woman. Um, and so Alaparib would also be considered for a year. So Personally, I would co-administer Laparib together with the aromatase inhibitor up front. Again, given the um, confirmed invasive disease-free survival, the distant disease-free survival, so the improvement in overall cure rates with that strategy. And then I would consider a bemocyclob for that same reason and improvement in 
early invasive disease-free survival and um, early overall survival. On the Monarchy study, of course, no one received adjuvant alaparib, so we're extrapolating. So that's really a data-free zone. We have two s- different studies that have had m- huge impact on our population in terms of improving cure rate. Um, and in neither study did they have access to the other drugs. So we have to extrapolate from the best available data. And so that's been my approach. I don't know, Bill, do you have a different no, strategy? No, I would, I would echo those comments. I mean, this patient's at such extraordinarily high risk for metastatic disease that as long as she was all in, we would be too. So I think that I would do the same approach. We would um, uh, give a lip first. Uh, Abemacyclib is going to be a long haul too. It's a couple of years of therapy and obviously the AI is going to be a minimum of five years, maybe up to seven or eight years, or, you know, a discussion with the patient about how long. So this is a patient that's going to be getting chronic therapy. And one of the the key points, even though from a medical oncology standpoint, the tolerability of both abemacyclib and aliprib are pretty good within those, the realm of toxicities we deal with. One of the things we always encounter in patients with adjuvant therapy is compliance and adherence. So it's going to be very important and critical whenever we see these patients, whoever it is that's following the patient at whatever time point to make sure and encourage them to stay on the therapies they're on. Because if they're not taking it, and we know very well that patients, as they are on therapy for the second, third, fourth, fifth year, there's a big drop-off. And this is a patient where that's going to have some huge implications in terms of risk of recurrence. So we have to really Uh, pay attention to the side effects, adjust if we need to, and encourage the patient to continue. So um, what what chemo would you both give anyway for this particular patient? I would probably give dose-dense ACT, which is my um, preferred regimen for patients with high-risk disease who don't have any cardiovascular risk factors. And how long is the bemocyclib given? That's What's given, the standard now? It's two years. So it's always with an AI? It's two years. Um, so it's, um, it's administered with hormone therapy for two years in high-risk populations. Almost everyone gets diarrhea within the first two months, so you do really have to be proactive to, to Bill's comment about compliance. You really have to be uh, proactive about identifying and and. Um, there have been a number of um, prophylactic studies looking at um, diarrhea management. But you, the, those first couple of months, if you can get through those first couple of months, patients tend to do extremely well. But you have to be proactive about managing the diarrhea. We would give the same chemotherapy. Yeah. There's, we separated at there's birth. A, there's, <laughs> there's a few questions, uh, several questions around, it sounds like you're giving them this patient. Obviously, she's very high risk, so many drugs. Couldn't you just give a PARP inhibitor? Or, you know, if it is there evidence that the PARP inhibitor has, you know, alone has an activity in a, these mutation carriers? So we know, is the question you mean as monotherapy? Yeah. Get all yeah, the other yeah, stuff? Yeah. Like, see, give her pre op and oh. see how she does. And does she need all this, you know, these drugs? Well, the, the, the standard of care is to do as we outline. But that said, uh, there is some data with preoperative. PARP inhibitors. In fact, Jen Litton from your place uh, uh, was the chair of one of those trials that look at teleziprim. So there is activity using PARP inhibitors up front, but it's really a study driven at this point. So the standard of care would be to give 
a, a standard neoadjuvant chemotherapy regimen followed by the adjuvant therapy we outlined. But I think we'll see more data coming along in select patients, not somebody with this volume of disease, but looking at PARP inhibitors, either as monotherapy or in combination with other strategies uh, to see if we can improve outcomes. Okay. I think that's a big trend in medical oncology in general, trying to figure out um, who needs more and who um, can have a more um, de-escalation, de-escalation or, or optimization approach based on uh, the biology of their disease, because most of the toxicity really comes from the chemotherapy backbones for these patients. And so, can we can we give more rational combinations that would allow for less chemotherapy? Is is um, a huge area of interest in medical oncology at the moment. Yeah, there was a, a question from the last case around this lymphovenous bypass. You know, what do, what do we do? Do we pre-schedule a plastic surgeon? You know, the, the surgery, usually they do a few bypasses, probably, I'm going to say two hours-ish, but, do you know, do we have the plastic surgeons on standby if we're going to be doing nodal evaluations on frozen? And the answer is yes, I will uh, pre-schedule it. And oftentimes they will be doing a reconstruction anyway, so they, they're all... Um, microvascular surgeons. So let's go to this other case, 46-year-old woman with definitive family history of breast and ovarian cancer, known germline BRCA1 mutation. She has a new left high-grade 2.6-centimeter triple-negative breast cancer. Ultrasound was done, axilla, and not suspicious. So T2, triple-negative, known mutation, what should the surgeons keep in mind about the recent changes? And this patient would have been uh, get genetic testing, but you know she's kind of coming in with a known uh, mutation. And here you go, um, neoadjuvant or surgery first. You know she obviously, if she chose breast conservation, which most, by the way, don't, uh, particularly younger patients. Um, this you know neoadjuvant chemo now with all this. What are you gonna? What really? What are you gonna? Um, what are you gonna? give let, this patient. There's a lot of other uh, new drugs, so. Well, I, I mean, it's complicated in that there have been um, a marked number of um, recent FDA approvals in this space, which is, you know, great for patients that we have all of these options. This is someone who I would consider for neoadjuvant chemotherapy with immune therapy based on the Keynote 522 data which randomized um, almost 1,200 women two to one to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy with um, pembrolizumab or placebo with about a 7.5% uh, improvement in pathologic complete response. But in the recently published, updated um, uh, event-free survival analysis, um, that we just published last month, there was an improvement, 7.7% in event-free survival, indicating that the addition of immune therapy was improving cure rates as early as uh, three years, almost 8% improvement in cure rates at that time point. So that's a really important um, um, innovative strategy for patients with high-risk triple-negative breast cancer. Um, so I would consider the Keynote 522 regimen for this patient um, it is a four-cytotoxic chemotherapy backbone, so it's a taxane, a platinum, anthracycline, and cyclophosphamide, so it is a lot of chemotherapy. And again, most of the toxicity comes from the um, chemotherapy backbone, but relevant to this audience, the immune therapy 
um, although the um, immune-related adverse events are relatively low, hypothyroidism being the most common, 15 to 20%, everything else is much less common. Um, those events can occur even a year after last exposure to therapy. So even a year after their last pembrolizumab dose, if they show up in your clinic with severe fatigue, um, that's something that should be front of mind, that they have a delayed immune-related adverse event. So um, that requires sort of multidisciplinary vigilance. So I would consider that in the neoadjuvant space. And then if she had residual disease, given her BRCA mutation, I would consider um, a laparib for her. Um, if she didn't have the BRCA mutation, I would consider um, adjuvant capecitabine for residual disease. So what about the Pembro? Would you can, would you not do the Pembro and then Spembrolizumab and then give the instead because the mutation? That, that's where I, I, I get kind of confused. <laughs> yeah. I So the FDA approval is for pembrolizumab with neoadjuvant chemotherapy and then for nine cycles. So it's given every three weeks intravenously and then for nine cycles in the adjuvant space. So that's the FDA approval. That is how the study was designed. The impact of the pembrolizumab was greater for patients who didn't have residual disease after chemotherapy. So more than 10% improvement in event-free survival for that population. Um, for patients who achieve a complete response, um, it's debatable whether more immune therapy is, is indicated, and there will be cooperative group studies that will explore that question. But for a patient with high-risk residual disease, I would um, give the adjuvant nine doses of pembrolizumab, and there is studies, uh, sorry, there are studies from the metastatic setting, Tapasio and Mediola, looking at PARP inhibitors together with immune therapy with no untoward toxicity signals. So I would be comfortable co-administering those medications. And the question around breast conserving surgery, we would discuss all options and risks, benefits. Um, how about any any other? No, I anything would, different around? No, for most patients, you know, the, the, the bar is getting set lower and lower for where you use immune therapy up front. You know, for most people, it would be two centimeters or node positive, but there's a creep even with smaller tumor sizes to consider immune therapy. And as Heather outlined, I think we have to be, uh, you know, always in the back of our mind thinking of the potential side effects from these therapies, which can be subtle. Uh, in our order sets, we already have, you know, you have to check thyroid function. You have to be cognizant of any itises that might develop, whether they're uh, pulmonary, whether it's going to affect, you know, electrolytes. So we actually have to pay attention to those numbers, which of course, patients going into surgery, that's a very relevant issue. And as Heather said, the the sort of unknown at this point is for those patients who get a very good response, are we going to be able to de-escalate, uh, not give them as much therapy if they get a PCR? And then the question for those that don't develop or don't achieve a PCR following um, chemo and pembrolizumab, how much of the options that we have available are we going to do? They should get pembro. Are we going to combine it with CAPE? We have safety data. Are we going to somehow sequence in a PARP? We have safety data. But what we're lacking is any long-term data showing incremental improvement with these doublets of therapy going out, you know, a long way. We have safety data, but no um, long-term efficacy data. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You bring up the point of if she, you know, she has a pathologic complete response. Her, you know, she's ninety percent um, 
disease-free survival probably at five to 10 years. So then we're going to be adding on all these other, um, you know, therapies. And then I, I guess um, that's something where it's a work in progress, really. Um, and I was a little confused. Is, is, is the standard really the uh, capsidabine too? If she has residual disease, it's, it's. Well, it would have been in, in my, my opinion, it would have been a standard strategy if we didn't have the Pembro data. And her being a um, BRCA mutation car carrier as well. Yeah. So in the absence of all that data, which takes us back, what, nine months ago or something, that was the standard. Now we have all these things in play where we have immune therapy, we have CAPE, we have possibly the use of a PARP inhibitor. And the question is how to optimally integrate them or can we select patients appropriately? And in my view, we don't have that information yet. No, and I mean, when you do cross-study comparisons of um, Olympia versus Cape Cytobine, the Olympia data is more impressive for that selected population. And so I, I favor the PARP inhibitor over Cape Cytobine for that population. But the majority of patients don't have a BRCA mutation. And uh, for those patients with uh, residual disease, I mean, a third of those, looking at historical data, a third of patients with high-risk uh, triple negative disease uh, residual disease before the immune therapy and other the other uh, innovations when we were dependent on chemotherapy, a third of them would be dead within three years. So I err on the side of over-treating them. Um, and uh, I do give capecitabine. I do continue the adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab. Um, I have done some creative things with radiation in those two drugs in that, in that space. Um, we don't have data from the Keynote 522 study yet as to um, how physicians decided to administer immune therapy, either sequentially or concurrently with radiation. So we still need that data to directly inform um, decision-making. But um, I have been known to co-administer capecitabine with radiation and Pembro at the same time and then continue the Pembro and capecitabine together based on the metastatic safety data. There is a question here, and I, as far as I know, I don't have an answer, and that is, are there any greater perioperative complications yeah. with any of these neoadjuvant yeah, therapies? So, and I'm not aware yeah, of any so data. The, yeah, so obviously we're using it in a lot of checkpoint inhibitors in a lot of different disease sites where have an immunotherapy um, center. Um, Jim Allison, Nobel Prize uh, from MD Anderson. Um so we're hyper vigilant about it, uh, all the complications because it's being utilized so much. Uh, specifically in in surgery, you know, it's anecdotal. There was a patient that I knew who had uh, adrenal insufficiency. I mean, it's a, probably very rare and you tracked, but um, we're, you know, since the approval, you know, we, I, you know, I did ask actually before we went, how many patients have we given uh, uh, Pembro up up front? Um, and with the switch, and we're tracking them. I I, I don't want to misspeak, but I know we have a large population of triple negative cases, and I'm seeing a lot of my patients on it. Anecdotally, I'm not seeing too many um, wound complications or anything like that. But big surgeries, we're, we'll obviously be re reporting on that. On the neoadjuvant side, we have not, you, you know, um, before the checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, have not had an increase in complication. It's kind of, um, even with all the new different uh, drug regimens over the last couple of decades. I, and 
to expand on that. So I had the privilege of working with Jim Ellison when I was at Sloan Kettering, and he informed the first um, curative intent immune therapy study um, that we undertook, which was back in 2010, um, which was looking at immune therapy versus cryoablation versus the combination based on his preclinical data and um, the idea of applying immune therapy to treat breast cancer was really um, heresy at the time. And so our primary endpoint for that first effort was um, to demonstrate that we weren't delaying uh, surgery so that there was no um, untoward effects on surgery or surgical complications. And we've since undertaken a number of other related studies looking at immune therapy with cryoablation in larger efforts and also immune therapy with radiation in the neoadjuvant setting without any um, um, untoward surgical complications. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on. And this is the complicated, well, for me, this is, this is the slide, it's kind of very complicated. Um, I know you've talked about this, but can you just walk us through, Dr. MacArthur, on, you know, how do we look at these patients with uh, the, the uh, BRCA mutations? Sure. So this is an algorithm um, that I presented, I think, at San Antonio. Um, and it's it's my um, approach to high-risk early triple-negative breast cancer um, based on the available data. This is not a guideline-driven approach because, as we said earlier, we don't have data to inform all of these decisions, so we have to extrapolate from the best available data. Um, I am giving my high-risk patients typically... Um, stage two and three triple negative breast cancer, although as Bill pointed out, we're sort of creeping creeping down to um, to to maybe some high risk stage one patients as well. Um, with neoadjuvant chemotherapy with pembrolizumab in accordance with the Keno 522 study, they receive that regimen prior to surgery. If they achieve a complete response right now, as I said, the standard of care is to receive adjuvant pembrolizumab for an additional nine cycles, although, as I pointed out, um, the cooperative groups are planning um, studies looking at um, adjuvant pembrolizumab, pembrolizumab versus not in that population because the benefit with pembrolizumab overall for the entire year in that population was only 2%, and so it might be that all the advantage is conferred up front when it's administered with chemotherapy and that additional adjuvant therapy is not required. So, until those studies are undertaken, um, the standard of care is to administer pembrolizumab. Um, if they do not achieve a pathologic complete response and they have a suspected or confirmed BRCA mutation, then I consider pembrolizumab, uh, again, nine cycles together concurrently with Olaparib per the Olympia study. And again, that's an extrapolation based on metastatic trials uh, showing that the two drugs, immune therapy and PARP inhibitors, can be safely co-administered. Um, so I'm extrapolating from that metastatic, metastatic data into the adjuvant setting. For patients who do not have a um, known or suspected germline BRCA mutation, I am co-administering or considering capecitabine together with the adjuvant pembrolizumab. Um, and as I said earlier, the, the question about radiation and, and whether those drugs can be administered safely is not known. We have done uh, several trials in the metastatic and the curative intent setting um, co-administering radiation with pembrolizumab. So um, I, I have felt comfortable co-administering those, but we don't have data yet 
from the large Keynote 522 data um, about whether um, pembrolizumab was given concurrently or sequentially. Uh, again, it was left to physician's choice. So this is my own personal algorithm. As I said before, it's, a, it's an extrapolation from existing data. It is not supported by um, NCCN or any other kind of guidance, but it's just sort of my real-world approach to these patients in the fast-evolving world um, with so many recent FDA approvals of new drugs in this space. So um, just if, if non-mutation non carrier T1 triple negative, is there a role? Are you doing neoadjuvant in those or are you just going straight to surgery? Well, for most of those, they go to surgery. Um, but if you get a collection of us type of medical oncologists together in a room, there are some where T1C tumors are being considered for preoperative therapy. So that's what, what I was referring to with that creep right. of getting yeah. smaller. We don't have clear data about that yet. Yeah. I, I'd say the majority of MD Anderson T1, T1, you know, actually greater than one centimeter, we would, they're going to get chemo, we'll do it up front. Uh, there is, in those cases, maybe 10% chance of them, you know, will have metastatic disease. It is nodal, nodal disease, and we, we would just give it up front. Maybe the uh, risk is maybe reduced in half for nodal disease, so there's a benefit there. Obviously, we, for, for breast-conserving therapy, a very small tumor, that's not going to help. But that generally has been our approach for a long time. Um, if we're going, if they're going to benefit from chemo, we would do it first because the point though is the pembro. So as yeah. you get to these smaller tumors, yeah. we don't clearly understand the added advantage of pembro, but we do understand the toxicity profile that comes with right. combining it with chemo. So that piece has to be sorted out. So the FDA approval is for high risk triple negative. So that could be, I guess. The you medical oncologist would decide. Yeah, you essentially, I mean, to participate in Keynote 522, you essentially had to have stage two or three disease. Um, so it didn't include those patients. So again, it's um, the, the art of extrapolation from existing data. And there was an interesting um, paper in the JCO a few years ago looking at even T1A and T1B node negative, triple negative breast cancer, showing that even those small tumors um, um, those patients with small tumors derive benefit from chemotherapy. So I think it speaks to the shift um, that's underway at the moment that the biology really drives the decision-making rather than conventional um, staging information for the most part. Yeah, there, there's a lot of questions regarding um, NCCN criteria and, you know, what what are you doing, you know, with, with these patients? I mean, our, on our side is... For the last three years or so, I've for every patient I've offered them um, genetic counseling and testing, even if they didn't meet criteria, we still tested. I know there's expense in, uh, involved in um, in that, but things are really different. Like I said, I, I for that patient that you know that um, the sixty year old, I just never would have th thought about it. I mean, it's locally advanced. I think um, it's would be standard in metastatic as well, you know, thinking in those terms, is there some other drug for patients with uh, mutations? Right. So if you, if, you know, th those kind of analyses have been done, I can't um, reiterate the numbers perfectly, but you are missing patients if you apply NCCN guidelines to mm -hmm. a greater pool of patients. 
who might be BRCA1 or 2 mutants. I think how we decide on testing is based on the clinical features of the tumor in the patient in front of us. So if it appears that that patient may, if BRCA1 or 2 positive, be a candidate either in the metastatic setting or in the adjuvant setting, we would certainly want to know the status of that patient, regardless of whether or not they're meeting the guidelines perfectly. There, there are a few questions around why aren't we um, testing the tumors? You know, somatic mutations, why does it have to be germline? Well, the tongue data that I referred the well, number one, the approval is based on germline mutations. But the data that I was referring to in at least that one slide from tongue, which admittedly is a relatively small population of patients, it showed that in somatic mutations, you know, so in other words, in the tumor itself, that those patients who had a somatic BRCA1 or 2 mutation, they had about a 50% response rate in the metastatic disease setting from the PARP inhibitor or Liprib. And similarly, uh, the taliziprib data uh, showed a similar finding with somatic mutations as well. So I think it doesn't apply to the adjuvant setting, at least in my mind at this point. And whether you got it approved in the metastatic disease setting would probably be the art of conversation with whoever you have to talk to uh, to get it approved. Okay, so in, even in the metastatic, you're not looking for PARP inhibitors and somatic mutations in breast cancer? Well, you're getting that, you know, most patients at some point are getting uh, molecular testing done in the metastatic disease setting. So you may come across this. And in somebody with metastatic disease, you may advocate for that patient to get approval for a PARP inhibitor if you don't have another option, if they have a somatic mutation, but it's not, it's not the FDA approval at this point. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about, you know, why are we giving more drugs? And, um, you know, especially if there's if pathologic complete response. Uh, we've, I think we've gone over that. We just need more data. There's trials coming up. Um, and then there's a question around um, PARP therapy working without chemo and radiation and surgery. Um, I think, you know, that Neotala study does show monotherapy um, in germline BRCA mutations. There is a pretty high rate of pathologic response, uh, 45, 50%. But again, we just don't know if that's going to translate, at least at this point, to long-term um, in, uh, increase in disease-free survival, as it, as it might in, in other drugs. Um, there's questions. I just don't want to miss anything. We have about 10 seconds. There's questions about KI-67. Is that standard? It's not standard where we are um, and probably won't really move into um, this. A any last take-home uh, comments in the last five to 10 seconds? <laughs> I mean, I would just, uh, again, add that, you know, it's a really exciting time to be treating breast cancer because we have an unprecedented number of um, recent FDA approvals actually translating into improved cure rates for our high-risk population. So it's a really exciting time. There are a number of additional promising drugs that we haven't touched on here that are coming up through the pipeline, antibody drug conjugates. Um, look really promising and might allow for some de-escalation of or optimization of chemotherapy. Um, and so those are really exciting um, uh, areas of research at the moment. But, 
it, it's terrific that we have a complicated space that requires, you know, an hour of discussion because this is um, uh, it's great for our patients. And only a few years ago, all we had to rely on was cytotoxic chemotherapy. And now we have all of these great biologic strategies. So it's a, it's a real time of hope, I believe, for our uh, high-risk patients. And so many of these therapies are going to find their way into the preoperative setting, uh, at least for evaluation. And certainly the goal of every uh, you know, drug developer is to get their drugs into earlier stages of disease, both from a business standpoint, obviously there's a bigger pool of patients, but more importantly, that's where you're likely to have the greatest impact on changing the overall outcome. So I think, um, you know, as Heather said, this is an exciting time to be in oncology. I'd really like to thank you for joining us live in person or in early, and especially all of you folks on virtually and our esteemed speakers at our surgery meeting. Thanks again, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VHX 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca and Merck and Company Incorporated.